We are privileged as a church that God has granted us connection to people who love Christ. And through our lead pastor, Brad Bigney, he has had the privilege of getting to know Dr. Jim Hamilton. And I asked him this morning, Jim, tell me something about you. Right off the bat, he's, I'm married, I've got five kids. And as I thought about that this morning, that's the reason why he came up last night. So he'd get a good night's rest. But his family's not with him. Five kids from age 12 down to age 2. He's professor of biblical uh, theology at Southern Seminary. He is preaching pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And as I said, it's the people who are the church here at Grace Fellowship. I'm going to ask you to join me in welcoming Dr. Jim Hamilton. Come, brother. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. And as I mentioned in the first service, my great esteem for your pastor just raises the privilege that I feel to stand before you this morning. Let me open with a word of prayer. Father, our need this morning is to encounter you, and so we pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. We pray that you would cause us to be confronted with all of your majesty and holiness. We pray that your absolute justice would press in upon us and convince us that you are going to right wrongs and call sinners to account. And we pray, Father, that the unspeakable mercy that you have lavished in Christ would also be more and more apparent to us through what John was inspired by your spirit to write. So, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see your glory by the power of your spirit in the word of in the word of God, in the word that you have inspired through John, your apostle, this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There is a phenomenal new musical. Maybe some of you have heard it or even gone to New York City or I think Chicago now to to see it. It's called Hamilton, an American musical. It's about Alexander Hamilton. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that's so remarkable about this musical is the way that the genius who created it, this fellow Lynn manuel uh, Miranda, the way that he entered so profoundly, emotionally into the experience of Alexander Hamilton and then is, is, is able to draw audiences into those emotions so that you actually feel what you ought to feel in response to these things. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing. Uh, the other day I was, I, was, I read a, a Books and Culture, which is a Christianity Today publication article about this. It prompted me to go download the music. I haven't seen the musical yet, but I went and downloaded the music. And, and I'm listening to this in my car on the way to Southern Seminary the other day. And I'm just weeping in my car. And I'm not a, I'm not a weepy person. I'm just crying in response to this. It's a great tragedy. Alexander Hamilton was, he was born in the Caribbean. His parents were not married. Uh, so he was an illegitimate child. He was born to nothing. And, and he demonstrated genius early on. He, 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 he was brought to the United States and, and very quickly just rose to prominence. He became George Washington's chief of staff. He found his way into the circle of the founding fathers of this country but he was the only founding father not to become president. And the reason he didn't become president is is because he was engaged in an an adulterous affair. And that tragic, adulterous affair, it broke his wife's heart, robbed her trust, and years later, once it became public, people began to smear his character. And and at one point, his son, who at at that time was 19 years old, heard his father being derided as a scoundrel. And he, de- he came to his, father, his father's defense. He defended his father's honor and he challenged the man to a duel and he was shot and killed 
in the duel. And, and once this affair became public, uh, Hamilton's political adversaries began to taunt him. You're never going to be president now. I tell you about Alexander Hamilton because in some ways what the book of Revelation is intended to do for us is hold out to us what can be ours and say to us, don't throw away your shot. Uh, this, this musical, this is one of the, the lines that Alexander Hamilton, as he's rising to prominence in the, in, the, in the story that the musical tells, he says again and again, I am not throwing away my shot. And the book of Revelation is trying to say to us this morning, don't throw away your shot. I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to the book of Revelation in the hopes that we too might avoid tragedy. The book of Revelation is is trying to keep us from a tragic failure like that that Alexander Hamilton experienced. Uh, this book, uh, you, may, you may be looking at a, a bulletin or some other literature from the church, and if so, you've got an outline there that tells you that the first eight verses of, of Revelation are a kind of introduction to the book. We'll look more closely at those in just a moment. And then beginning in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1, John begins to recount the vision that he saw. He begins to tell us what he saw. And that vision continues throughout the body of the rest of the book of Revelation, all the way through chapter 22 until about verse 9. And then at 22, 9 or 10 or so, uh, the vision sort of stops and you get some concluding verses at the end of the book. So the whole thing, the body of it, is one continuous visionary experience. Now, let's look at the opening verses, and John is going to tell us exactly what it is that he's given to us in the book of Revelation. He tells us here in Revelation 1.1 that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those are maybe the most important words of this whole book because they tell us what it is. And if you think about it, it's a little bit of an ambiguous phrase, isn't it? The revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to suggest to you that the ambiguity is intentional and that John means to communicate at least two things. First, what will be revealed in this book is Jesus. That's what's most important, I think, for you to take away from this. What is going to be revealed in the book of, of Revelation is the risen Lord Jesus. Second, this is a revelation from Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus in the sense that Jesus is being revealed to us. It's a revelation from Jesus in the sense that Jesus is the one who is revealing himself to us. Look at what he goes on to write here. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now just Think about those words for just a moment. And, and let's put together the, the chain of revelatory agents that we've got there. God the Father had this. He gave it to Christ the Son, who gave it to his angel, who then gave it to John, who then gives it to the servants of God, which includes us. That's what we've got right here. God is revealing himself to us through this scripture, even now, and, and across the book of Revelation, what is stated there in verse 1 is going to unfold in the drama of the book. Maybe if you've read the book, you know that in Revelation chapter 5, there's this depiction of God the Father seated on a throne. And he's holding in his right hand a scroll that is sealed with seven seals, which no one can open except Jesus. And Jesus comes... God the Father has it. Jesus comes, he receives the scroll from God the Father, and he opens the, the scroll. He opens the seals. And then in Revelation 10, after we read about in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9, what happens after the scroll is opened, in Revelation 10, an angel appears before John. And this angel is magnificent. He's huge, and he's mighty, and he's glorious, and he has in his hand a little scroll. And John is told to go and take the scroll and to eat it. 
And he eats the scroll, and then he prophesies. And that's the story of the book of Revelation. That's what's given to us here in Revelation chapter 1. God the Father has this. He gives it to Christ the Son, who gives it to the angel, who gives it to John, who gives it to us. Now, let's think again about this, this second word of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation is translating a Greek word, apocalypse. And sometimes this whole book is referred to as the apocalypse. And um, this, this idea of the apocalypse, this is, this is behind the phrase, maybe you've heard, apocalyptic literature. Um, the, the word apocalypse is putting together two little Greek words uh, that, that communicate the idea of, of an unveiling, a pulling back of what is covering the, the, the truth. And so, so what this book is doing for us it's as though there's this, this veil that we can't see behind. We see, we see these things that are tangible, these things that we think are real. And, and what God is doing for us in the book of Revelation, it's as, as though the, the Father is saying, let me pull back the veil for you. Let me show you how things really are. And the important thing about apocalyptic literature is that it is written to people who are being persecuted. It's written to people who are in difficulty. And, and in John's day, um, the churches were confronted with what's known as the Roman imperial cult. John was living in the Roman empire and the Caesar in, in Roman mythology, um, this guy named Aeneas, maybe you remember from the Iliad and the Aeneid, these, these stories of, 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 uh, Greco-Roman mythology, what had happened was the Greeks had besieged this city called Troy. And one of the heroes of Troy named Aeneas had escaped the fall of Troy. And he had had a bunch of adventures out in the Mediterranean Sea. And eventually he had found his way to Italy where he had founded Rome. And, and in this mythology, Aeneas, his, his father was a human, but his mother was a goddess. And so, in a sense, Aeneas was a son of the gods. And in the Aeneid, the story about Aeneas, in the Aeneid, all of the Roman Caesars, their descent is traced all the way back to uh, Aeneas, which means that the Caesars claimed that they were sons of the gods. And, and they, so the Caesars are presenting themselves as sons of gods, and then they gradually began to, to demand that they be referred to as Dominus, Lord, and Soter, Savior. So you've got a son of the gods who's claiming to be Lord and Savior, and more and more he's wanting people to worship him. And, and so this Roman imperial cult begins to spread over the Roman Empire, and eventually what they began to, to, to say was, if you don't participate in the Roman imperial cult, then you are not going to be authorized by the trade guilds, which means it's, it's like a, a doctor losing his license or it's like an attorney being disbarred. If you don't have authorization from the trade guilds, guess what? You can't buy or sell or participate in the economy. So, so these early Christians, they're confronted with a situation where they're being called to participate in the idolatrous worship of Caesar so that they can be authorized to do their jobs. And uh, John, the apostle, meanwhile, he's preaching that somebody else is Lord and Savior. Somebody else is the son of, a, son of the God in a way that totally delegitimizes all of Caesar's claims. Now, how do you think the Caesar's going to feel about that? He's not going to appreciate that very much, is he? In fact, he, he so um, uh, doesn't appreciate it that he exiles John. Look at, look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So Caesar is persecuting Christians. He's exiled John, and he's calling for people to worship him. And in the, in the worship of the, the Roman imperial cult, often these celebrations where they would, they would make sacrifices to Caesar and burn incense to Caesar, they would often descend into these drunken, orgiastic parties of sexual immorality. So these two things, idolatry and sexual immorality and pressure to conform to the culture, this is what these early Christians are confronting. And John is 
is now receiving this revelation, which is exactly what is needed. But, but first, let's, let's consider here. We, we've got a revelation, which is pulling back the veil, telling us the way that things really are. We'll see more about that in just a moment. And then, and then we've read how uh, this was made known to John, who bore witness, verse 2, to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. You, you may notice how that, those phrases, the word of God... And the testimony of Jesus Christ, we just read those in verse 9. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. These phrases are going to be used all across the book of Revelation. And, and here's a, a, a suggestion for you. Um, you can read through the book of Revelation all at one sitting and it'll take you about an hour. Uh, or you can do like I did and you can download the ESV app on your phone or your device and, and you can go to Revelation and you can tap the screen and it'll bring up this little speaker icon at the bottom. You can tap that and then you can hit play. And this guy, I think it's David Cochran Heath, he will read the book of Revelation to you. And as I drove up here yesterday, it's about an hour and 15, 20 minute drive from Louisville. I listened to the whole book of Revelation on that drive. It'll, it'll only take you about an hour and 10 minutes to listen to the whole book. And it'll be a great exercise. And what you'll hear is that that John does in Revelation the same thing he does in his gospel. He's got these phrases that he, he, he's, he's almost like a great composer, you know, who'll have these musical phrases and he'll break them up and recombine them in all these different configurations and then present them to you. And he keeps making the same point over and over again about the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John is bearing witness to this in verse 2, even to all that he saw. And then look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Praise the Lord. That's what I'm doing right now, receiving this blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. This is an apocalypse, a revelation, that's also a prophecy. What's the difference between these two? Well, apocalyptic literature seems to concern itself with the end of all things. And prophecy seems to concern itself with the outworking of events that lead up to the end of all things. And this book is both. And, and we can say, I think, also about apocalyptic that it is an, it's an intensification of prophecy. So blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear. That's you. And who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, what does it mean not only to hear, but to keep what is written in it? It means this. If you're an early Christian... And you're confronted with the Roman imperial cult. And they're calling you to engage in idolatry. And to give yourself over to sexual immorality. So that you can buy and sell and participate in the economy. It means that you do like this fellow Antipas. That we read about here in Revelation chapter 2 verse 13. Where Jesus says to the church in Pergamum. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. That's what it means to read, to hear, to keep. It means that you have your imagination transformed. It means that you have your understanding of reality reconfigured. It means that this becomes your standard of what is normal behavior. What is righteous behavior? So that when they call you to get with the program, to be inclusive, to be affirmative, when they call you to acknowledge that there's no such thing as male and female, these are just cultural standards that have been imposed upon people. You say, no, I'm sorry. I believe in the God of the Bible. And in the beginning, he made man male and female. Those are different realities. And so I can't get with your program. I'm not going to go along with your agenda, whatever it costs me. You can kill me. God will raise me from the dead and reward me. That's what it means to hear and keep what is written in the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. And then look at verse four. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And that may sound familiar because that's the kind of formula that Paul uses in his letters. Paul, to the church of God that is in Ephesus or where, whatever the case may be. 
So, so this is a letter formula which tells us that what we're dealing with in the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic prophecy. It's an apocalypse. It's a prophecy. And it's in the form of a circular letter, which means that, that John wrote this thing down. And over in verse 11, Jesus tells him which churches he's going to send it to. And there are seven churches. And I think that's symbolic. It, it, it suggests that this is for all the churches. And that is reinforced by the fact that in the letters to the seven churches, at the end of every one of those individual letters, Jesus says the words, let the one who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, right? So Jesus has addressed an individual church, but then he says, if you've got ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit is speaking to all the churches by speaking to these seven. So it's an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter. So probably what happened in the early church when John sent this thing out is somebody arrived in a gathering like this, On a Sunday, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, and these Christians came together, and this guy who was most likely authorized by the apostle John himself would stand up and he would just read straight through the thing. And and because of their awareness of the culture and the imagery and, and, and the way that people talked in that world, it would have made perfect sense to them what he was saying. And that, that emissary, that, that letter carrier probably also would have been authorized to explain anything that people had difficulty with. And, and so we're engaging here in an ancient Christian practice of, of enjoying and learning from these scriptures that reveal Jesus to us. And let me skip down to verse 9. I think this is one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible. John writes, I, John. Now think about this. This is John, the son of Zebedee. This is one of the first disciples, most likely, that Jesus called. And for, I don't know what, I mean, there's just chemistry between people, you know? And apparently, I think there was probably chemistry between John and Jesus that resulted in John identifying himself as the beloved disciple. Imagine this. This is a guy who was probably something like the closest friend that Jesus had. You know, he, he's got the beloved disciple, then he's got this sort of inner three, and then he's got the 12, and then he's got the 70, then he's got the masses. This is the guy that's closest to Jesus in his earthly life. He's the beloved disciple. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write scripture. I can't think of anybody that's maybe more important than, than John, I mean, Jesus naturally, but then maybe Paul. I mean, those are sort of the top two, right? In terms of significance. I, John, your brother. If you're a believer in Jesus, John is your brother. Your brother and partner in the tribulation. This is just like what Paul says to the churches that he founds in Acts 14. He's going to, he's, he goes back through all those churches that he and Barnabas planted. And he's saying to them, It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. We could have a discussion about the great tribulation and the tribulation. What John is saying here is it's all tribulation. From the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ, it's all tribulation. And now it's going to intensify, I think, at the end. But yes, the whole thing is tribulation. What's that tribulation look like? Well, it's all that stuff that makes us groan, isn't it? It's things not being the way they're supposed to be. Think about John. Jesus says to him with the other apostles, go make disciples of all nations. And he's doing that. He's trying to do what, and then he gets exiled to Patmos. Probably not too many people on Patmos. And I think John could, could well question the Lord, couldn't he? Lord, you gave me this commission. I'm supposed to be going to all, and now here I'm on, on this island. What's going on here? And you know what Jesus does? He says, here, John. Let me reveal myself to you. And this revelation of myself to you is going to result in a permanent written record that is going to go to the ends of the earth so that centuries, millennia from now, people will be hearing you testify to my glory. You will be making disciples, John, long after you die because I got you exiled to Patmos. So whatever your tribulation is, I mean, just this week, just yesterday, I heard from two dear friends 
Uh, both, both of these guys are guys that I've coached baseball with. My, our kids play ball together. And um, one, my one dear friend, his, his son yesterday, he'd just been signed up for fall baseball. He, he, he's up at his mom's classroom. She's a teacher. He slips on some water in the floor. His foot twists the wrong way. He lands the wrong way, breaks his femur up near his hip bone. Tribulation. And, and this dad is feeling helpless, you know. What can you do for your... You can't prevent those kinds of things. And he's, and he's sad for his son that he won't be able to play ball, but he's worried about his son's future. And he's in surgery yesterday. And then last night, another guy that I coach ball with, I, our kids play ball together. His son's playing football for the first time this fall. He's been looking forward to it. His dad played football at Alabama. You know, it's a big deal. They're at, an, they're at a back-to-school party last night at church. His son trips on a chair. He falls. He breaks his forearm. Tribulation. And and there's a lot worse stuff than that going on in the world, isn't there? Yesterday I read a story about these children in Africa kidnapped by Boko Haram, forced to commit atrocities, uh, forced to to enter into conflict. I mean, these horrible things happening. And then there, everybody in this room has got stuff, don't you? You got stuff at work. You got people you don't like. You got people that you're worried about, family members that are maybe unbelieving, maybe children that are straying from the Lord. There's tribulation. And what we need in the midst of our tribulation is what Jesus gives to John in the midst of his tribulation. Look what Jesus does here. John is our brother and partner in this tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And he tells us he was on the island of Patmos. And then verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit. That phrase is going to occur four, four times in the Spirit. It's going to occur four times in the book of Revelation. We'll look at each of them. And each time it occurs, it marks a turning point in the book. This first time, it's a, it's a turning point from the introductory verses into this chapters two and, uh, 2 and 3, where what we're going to have is Jesus addressing these seven churches. So John tells us, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, right. And then look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Now think about that. I turned to see the voice. That's the way this book is going to work. There's going to be these, these sort of these conflicting kind of descriptions that get at this supra-reality revelation that John is being given. I turned to see the voice. Well, you hear a voice, don't you? Don't you? But, but John is telling us he's turning to see the one speaking to him. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And what he sees is the risen Christ in glory. And here's a point of application for you. When you groan from the tribulation, what you need is not an, an ah-Christian way of dealing with your circumstances. What you need is not an alternative explanation of why, the, why things are the way that they are. In your tribulation, when you're suffering, what you need is to see Jesus. And I submit to you that in the midst of your tribulation, if you can behold the risen Christ in glory, it will be enough. John tells us here in verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Uh, we read about this lampstand in, in the temple that Moses was instructed to give to Israel. And that lampstand was a symbol of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Maybe you remember the description of the lampstands. The, the cups that held the lights were referred to as almond blossoms. So this menorah, this seven-pronged lampstand, was like a symbol of a tree that was radiating. It was radiating the life-giving presence of God. And so it's as, it's as though John is being allowed to look here into the true temple. And in the midst of the lampstands, verse 12, one like a son of man. That, that phrase, one like a son of man, that's familiar to us from Daniel chapter 7. You remember Daniel 7, the ancient of days is seated on the throne. And then one like a son of man, the Davidic king is presented before him to receive an everlasting kingdom. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed, he's clothed like the high priest of Israel. 
with a long robe and a golden sash around his, around his, his uh, chest. It's around his chest because he doesn't need to gird up his loins. Because his work is done. This is the true high priest. The one who, as the author of Hebrews tells us, has entered into that true sanctuary with a better sacrifice himself. And because of that sacrifice, we sing that song earlier about how before the throne of God, we have a strong and perfect plea, the Lord Jesus. And so the high priest of Israel, risen from the dead, stands before John. And then look at verse 14. The hairs of his head were white like wool. John's doing something very interesting here. He's just described Jesus as the one like the Son of Man from Daniel 7. And in that vision in Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days, seated on the throne, had hair that was white like wool, uh, white hair. And now what John is doing is combining the description of the one like the Son of Man with the description of the Ancient of Days. And he's making a profound point for us. it's, It's saying to us, the God of the Bible eternally exists as three persons who share one nature. We're up against the mystery of the Trinity here. We're up against the reality that the God of the Bible is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory, eternally existent as three distinct persons who make up the one God. That's what John is telling us here when he says that the one like the Son of Man is the one who has the hairs of his head white like wool, which is also communicating his perfect and complete wisdom. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's nothing he's overlooked. He knows what he's doing, even in broken bones and broken hearts. His eyes, at the end of verse 14, were like a flame of fire. This is communicating that he sees everything. His his feet, verse 15, were like burnished bronze. Even that part of him that touches the soiled earth is perfectly pure and altogether righteous. That's what this is symbolizing. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Now this description of Jesus is going to be reused in chapters 2 and 3 as Jesus introduces himself to the churches. And to these churches that are being tempted to engage in in idolatry and sexual immorality, Jesus identifies who he is. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And the seven stars at the end of chapter 1 are identified as the seven churches. It's, It's like Jesus saying, church, I've got you in my hands. And then look at 2, 8. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He's saying, churches, I've conquered death. 2.12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I'm the one who speaks the truth, Jesus is saying. 2.18, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. Church, there's nothing I don't see. And then in 3.1, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. He has this full possession of the Holy Spirit. 3.7, The words of the one, the the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And then finally, 314, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Jesus is identifying himself to the churches as the authoritative emissary of the living and true God, whom no one will escape. And then what he does is, is he says to these churches, look, I know what you're going through. I know how you're tempted. Hold fast because it's worth it. You know, what Jesus is doing is something like, if if we had been able to go back to that moment in Alexander Hamilton's life when he was tempted by that woman with whom he committed adultery, if we were able to say to Alexander Hamilton at that moment, Alexander, think what this will do to Eliza who loves you. I think if we had said that to him, he probably would have drawn back and, and, and banished this temptress from his presence. Or if we could have said to him, Alexander, if you continue in this with this woman, it will cost you the life of your son who will defend your honor. No way would he have gone through it. Or if we had said to him, Alexander, 
if you continue in this, you need to realize every other one of the founding fathers is going to become president of the United States. Except you. Because of this. it's not worth it. Look at what Jesus does for these churches. 2-7. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You need to stay faithful to death. Look at, look at 2, uh, 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Even if they kill you, it's worth it. I'll give you f- fruit from the tree of life. 2.11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Two, uh, down in verse 17, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now think about this. I think what that's communicating is... There's going, to be some, between, there's going to be something between God and those who conquer that only they share. This is communicating an intimacy between individual believers, you personally, and God the Father that nobody else is in on. If you conquer, what does it look like to conquer? Look back at, look back at 2.13. You hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antimus, my faithful witness who was killed among you. And then combine that over with chapter 12, verse 11. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Do you know what that means? That means the way that you conquer is you trust in the blood that Jesus shed. You trust that Jesus' death on your behalf makes you right with God. And that trust, look what it issues in. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. It's like the Roman imperial cult is saying to Christians, get with the program. Affirm what we're saying as virtuous. Don't hold to this harmful, wrong-headed system of morality that hurts people, that denies people their freedom of expression, their freedom to love who they feel called to love. You need to affirm what we're saying is right. You need to say that Caesar is Lord and Savior. And you need to get on board with what we're saying. So toe the line, sign the affirmation. And if you don't, you won't be able to do your job anymore. Your family won't be fed anymore. And we may seize you and we may put you to death. And Jesus is saying, you be faithful to me. You be faithful to me. I don't care what they do to you. I will raise you from the dead and I will reward you. And what we need is for the promises of Jesus to be bigger for us than the promises of the world. And what John is giving us is evidence that that's the case. And the way that he's giving us that evidence is pulling back the veil. And and the next step in the pulling back of the veil, look over at Revelation chapter 4. John writes here, after this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. So these churches, they're being persecuted. They're being tempted. They're they're being led or, or enticed into sexual immorality and idolatry. And John says, here's what's really going on. Look at verse one there. He he hears, hears this first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet which said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So he's invited up into the heavenly throne room. Verse 2, at once I was in the spirit. That's the second occurrence of that phrase. And this whole section of the book from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 16, you've got this throne room scene in chapters 4 and 5 that issues in the judgments of God on the wicked. So this is the way things really are. God is seated on his throne in heaven. Revelation 4. Jesus is risen and reigning with God. Revelation 5. And God's judgment is coming for certain. Revelation 6 through 16. That's what we've got here. Let's think for just a moment about this worship scene in Revelation chapter 4. 
And I would just encourage you to let your imagination run wild. You will not imagine a a scene too large for the depiction of what John describes here. You will not You will not conceive in in your field of imaginary reality. You will not be able to think up colors that are too vivid. You will not hear voices too beautiful saying the words that are depicted here. You will not hear harmonies that that are too musical. It, It is more than we can conceive or think. So, so in heaven, John describes this scene where, verse 8, there are these four living creatures and, and they are day and night, never ceasing to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And when they say that, verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor th- and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders. So it's like there are these concentric rings of worshipers around the throne. And when the inner circle, when they're doing this, which is always, the 24 elders outside this outer ring, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God. And they go on praising him. And we could ask at this point, is there anything that could, that could divert the eyes of heaven from the one seated on the throne? Is there anyone whom the one seated on the throne would allow to be worshipped alongside him? Is there anything that could add to the praise of the one seated on the throne in heaven? And the answer in Revelation 5 is yes, Jesus. Because what, what amazingly happens in Revelation 5 is Jesus comes on the scene and you know what happens? People, the the, the inhabitants of heaven, they turn their gaze from the one seated on the throne to Jesus. And they begin to praise him. And it's like fuel to the fire of the worship of heaven. And the Father allows it. It is astonishing. God the Father allows God the Son to be worshipped alongside him. Look at verse 9 of chapter 5. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, and this is addressed to the Lamb. 4.11, worthy are you addressed to the Father, the one seated on the throne. 5.9, worthy are you to the Son to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And then in verse uh, 11, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads. A myriad is 10,000. So 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And they go on in the worship. And, and then in verse 13, it all comes together to him who sits on the throne, the father, and to the lamb, the son. There's this combined worship of the father and the son. And then flowing out of that in Revelation 6 through 16 are the judgments of God on the wicked. And it makes this point. The judgment of God is personal. The judgment of God is not some abstract thing. It's not God winding up the clock of the universe and then letting events take their course. No, it is God personally vindicating those who have been murdered. It is God personally avenging the wrong done to the martyrs. It is God personally visiting the way that the wicked have harmed people according to his standards. The judgment of God is personal. God the Father, we need to, we need to feel this. God the Father is personally offended by the ways that we disregard his authority and majesty and holiness every time we sin. Every time we say a harsh word. So we need, to have the, we need to allow the book of Revelation to teach us the way that things really are. It's not normal to sin. We shouldn't think about our transgressions. Oh, everybody does this. This is the way that everybody talks. This is the way that everybody treats their wife. This is the way that everybody does with their... No, no. We live in an, inv- a, 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 
indescribably invasive culture. The culture sends us its messages. We carry these things around in our pockets. We're surrounded by these screens. And the culture is all the time telling us murder, violence, uh, immoral sex. It's all normal. Embrace it. Celebrate it. Adultery, divorce. It's good. That's what the culture is saying to us. And what we need the book of Revelation to do is say to us, no, God is holy and his commandments are true and he is going to establish his righteousness. And our only hope is to be convinced that we need to turn away from sin and trust in the shed blood of Jesus and trust him for salvation. That's our only hope. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the good news that we offer to you. It, it's, like, it's like what happens in, in Hamilton, an American musical. It's a, it's a true story. Eliza Hamilton was a believer. And Alexander Hamilton was a very religious person. And he genuinely repented of his sin. And, and at one point in that musical, uh, as, as they are working through, the, the, the refrain in the song is that Alexander and his wife are working through the unimaginable grief of their son being slain and of the, the havoc of their marriage. And at one point, they join hands and the voices of the cast all come together on this beautiful word, forgiveness, forgiveness. And the Bible says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, the alternative, if you don't want that, you get what we find in Revelation 17 and 18. Revelation 17, verse 3. He carried me away in the Spirit. This is the third time we see this phrase. And what we have in Revelation 17 through 22 is a depiction of the fall of the harlot and then the coming of the king and then the marriage of the bride. So in 17, 3, he carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman. Now, this woman is the personification of the wicked world system, which is Babylon. So look at verse 5. On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes. Now, think for just a moment about what a prostitute is. A prostitute is somebody who sells what shouldn't be sold. A prostitute is somebody who gives what was meant to be enjoyed in the context of a covenant, in the context of a marriage. It, it was meant to be given freely and it was meant to result in family and love and deepened commitment. And all this is being cheaply sold as a fake imitation, a false parody of what God offers for free. And, and so what John is saying to us is the world is offering you something that you would get in a better way if you would be faithful to God in the context of his covenant. You would have it for free and you would have it with all his benefits and you wouldn't face the judgment that's coming on the harlot. So in chapter 18, look at verse 2, he called out with a loud voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. If you go to the whore to get what God means to give you for free, if you're faithful to him, you're going to fall with Babylon because the king is going to come. Look at Revelation 19, 11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. This is Jesus coming in power to reign. And then look over at Revelation 21, verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. And what's remarkable is that in the same way that Babylon is personified as a prostitute, the new Jerusalem is personified as the bride. Look at Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride, the new Jerusalem, the people of God, has made herself ready. Uh, in, this, in this musical, uh, Hamilton, as, as, he's, as he's rising up through the ranks, again and again he sings, I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. You know, we have an opportunity right now that I don't think we're going to have in the age to come. In the resurrection, when we have glorified bodies, 
when we dwell in a, in a renewed land where every tear has been wiped away, I don't think we'll have an opportunity then to suffer for Jesus the way that we have an opportunity to suffer for him now. And you know, when, when you suffer for somebody, it makes you love them more. And it communicates to everybody that sees what you're going through how committed you are to the one you're suffering for. I mean, think about mothers going through childbirth and then being awakened in the middle of the night for their children. What does it do? It communicates to everybody how much the mother loves this child and it forges this bond between mother and child that's like no other because of what the mother has suffered for the one she loves. You have an opportunity now to resist temptation. A shot now to do this in a way that when all things are made new, you won't have the opportunity. I don't think there will be things then like there are now that could lead us away. Don't throw away your shot. This is the chance to show valor. This is the chance to clothe yourself with the truth, the blessed breastplate of righteousness, to gird up your loins with that belt of truth, to take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Holy Spirit and say, bring it, bring it, I'm going to stand. And when Jesus comes, if you compare, you can compare the rewards of Revelation 20 through 22 with the promises that he made to the seven churches. And everything he said he was going to give. In Revelation 2 and 3, he gives. The hidden manna. The new name written on the white stone. The right to eat of the tree of life. Every promise he makes, he keeps. Let's pray. Father, would you cause your word to rewire our affections, to reconfigure our imaginations, to reorient what we think is normal and right and good. And Father, would you cause your word and the promises made in it and the glory of Christ revealed in it, would you cause these things, Lord, to make us people who are not swayed by the world's wicked enticements who are not lured by the song of the prostitute. Lord, help us to stand. Help us to be those who, as Paul describes, having done all to stand, to stand firm then. Lord, make it so. By the power of your word, by the grace that you've given to us in Christ, through the Spirit working in our hearts, as we trust you, as we believe what you've promised, as we hope in the glory to be revealed when the Lord Jesus comes on that white horse. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.